Hey, my name is Neil Rapley. I'm a researcher at Book of Mormon Central. I had a chance to sit down and answer some questions from our Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. We wanted to share these answers here as well and invite you to join us on Facebook to learn about more great resources to help with your Come Follow Me study this year. Again, that's the Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. Now, I hope you enjoy. All right, welcome to another week of uh, me answering your Come Follow Me questions. I guess we don't really have a name for this uh, segment, but uh, uh, we're gonna go through your questions for 2 Nephi chapters one through five uh, this week. Um, as usual, lots of great questions. Also, as usual, not enough time to answer them all, so I've had to be selective. Uh, before we dive in, let me just uh, go over uh, the usual disclaimer really quickly. Uh, the answers given in this video do not represent the official opinion of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, of Book of Mormon Central, or of the uh, Come Follow Me, Teach, Learn, Share Facebook group. And since they're kind of off the cuff, they don't even represent my own official views. I'm just telling you what I think after a little bit of research this week, uh, but not a lot. Uh, I've got a day job, and this is only a small part of it. Uh, but with that said, I really enjoyed your questions, and I enjoyed uh, the time I did have to look into them, and uh, let's go ahead and jump right in. I'm going to kind of go through sort of uh, chronologically here from from questions relevant to 2 Nephi chapter 1 to uh, ones that are relevant to the later chapters, um, kind of in order. Uh, so first question I'm going to deal with here, uh, Cordell Smith, uh, I always wondered where Lehi and their family made their first landing. We know from later scripture accounts that it was somewhere in the south. Uh, yeah, we do. Um, and there's a few other things we know. Uh, uh, quickly, though, this is sort of technically a question for last week, uh, because that's when they made landfall. I'm going to answer it anyway, because I like it. Um, and I wanted to uh, to do this. I'm kind of a big into the whole geography thing. Uh, but of course, the answer sort of depends on what we think about the rest of Book of Mormon geography. And that is sort of a, like a 600 plus piece puzzle uh, because there are over 600 passages in the Book of Mormon that are relevant to geography. And uh, lots of scholars and other people have tried to put them together and come up with different answers and things like that. We obviously don't have time to go through all of that here right now. Um, what I will say is that early Latter-day Saints, they actually believed, uh, and this includes people like Oliver Cowdery, uh, and Orson Pratt and others. Um, they believed it was actually in Chile. And in fact, were willing to give, they were really specific. They, uh, they believed it was specifically at the, uh, 30 degrees South latitude, uh, which is, um, like I said, really specific. I'm not sure why they thought that, um, but uh, that was based on assumptions about a hemispheric model of geography. One thing that most people agree on today is that based on the distances of travel and things like that in the Book of Mormon, uh, the actual geography and scope of events within the text is much more limited. And so uh, most models these days depend, uh, will focus on a specific region of the Americas, and, uh, you know, depending on whether they want to set things up in South America or Mesoamerica or North America or whatever, that'll change a lot of things, how they're interpreting scriptures and things like that. And uh, that'll obviously change where they think Lehi landed. 
what we can actually say from the Book of Mormon itself, uh, the most important piece of information is Alma 22, verse 28, which uh, indicates that the land of their father's first inheritance was, uh, as you mentioned, in the south, but also in the west, by the western seashore. Um, that, uh, that's kind of the reason why most scholars have believed it was somewhere along the Pacific coast. That's probably the most likely place for a western seashore, um, which is a problem for some models, but I won't uh, get into that. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, everything I have to say about uh, where Lehi may or may not have landed. Um, McKay, he's, uh, excuse me, McKay Heasley asked, why do you think 1st Nephi and 2nd Nephi are separated into two books? Also, why are they separated at that particular point? This is a really good question. Um, it's a question that actually a lot of scholars have kind of worked on and tried to, to find answers to for a long time. And uh, no one has really been able to, I mean, there, there's some different answers out there. There's no consensus on this. Um, it's something we're still kind of working on. Um, a few places you can go to, to read up on some of the different possibilities in the book Chiasmus in Antiquity, which was edited by uh, John W. Welch. Uh, there's a paper by Welch on Chiasmus in the Book of Mormon, and in it, uh, Welch suggests that Nephi split his writings into two books uh, so that he could formulate each as a chiasm. And a chiasm is just a literary pattern where you take concepts and themes and topics and ideas and you arrange them in a specific order and then you repeat them in reverse order. So uh, it's like, you know, you have A, B, C, and then C, B, A. Um, and Welch thinks that that pattern is found in both 1st Nephi and 2nd Nephi and they were split so that they could be arranged into these two separate chiasms. And he talks about that more in, uh, like I said, in Chiasmus in Antiquity in the paper on uh, Chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. Um, another paper that kind of explores this question is Nephi's Outline by Noel B. Reynolds, and that's available in the Book of Mormon Central Archive. Uh, that paper is actually, there's a lot going into Reynolds' theory. I really can't boil it down uh, very effectively here. Uh, I would just recommend go read it and, and see what you think about that. Another place, um, Joe Spencer more recently uh, has studied the structure of first and second Nephi and uh, wondered about why there's this split here between the two books. And in, in his book, An Other Testament, he goes into that topic a little bit. Um, and then also Frederick W. Axelgard uh, wrote a paper uh, back in like the 80s on first and second Nephi and inspiring whole. He talks somewhat about the structure and what's going on here as well. Uh, that can also be found in the BMC archive. Uh, again, I I would I don't even there's so much going on with with each of these theories and and the intricacies and stuff. I can't even begin to try and summarize what all these people think. I just recommend you go uh, check those papers out if you're curious about learning more um, and see what you think. You decide who you think is right. Um, Janine Glenn uh, asked, "Why do we not have a record of Lehi's blessing to Nephi?" Uh, another good question, very perceptive to even notice that Nephi doesn't tell us what his father's blessing was to him. Um, not a lot of people have recognized that, and it hasn't really been explored a lot. The only thing that I can think of off the top of my head is uh, something Grant Hardy said 
in his book, Understanding the Book of Mormon, uh, where he speculated, and it's very, very speculative. There's not a lot to go on here, but he speculated that there might have been some stern warnings or rebukings in Nephi's blessing, just as there was to his brothers, um, that uh, that presented Nephi in less than flattering ways, and that's not the image he wanted uh, sending out to the world. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Um, like I said, very, very speculative. I think... Um, Nephi gives us a little bit of a window into his own private uh, uh, raw feelings, really, shortly after his father died in 2 Nephi 4, with uh, the second half of 2 Nephi 4, which is uh, called Nephi's Psalm. A lot of people, a lot of scholars call it that anyway. Um, and uh, you can tell that Lehi's death really affected him personally. I think it's possible he wanted to keep those tender moments between him and his father private for himself, um, that he he just wanted, it, it was personal and private to him, and he wanted to preserve that. Uh, now, I think that's a possibility. Uh, that being said, he maybe wasn't very fair to his brothers because he didn't let them keep theirs private. It may, I don't know, maybe he got everyone's permission, but he, uh, he was pretty willing to share everybody else's stuff, uh, but uh, maybe just his own blessing felt a little too intimate and too personal to disclose. I don't know. Um, but that's that's as speculative as anything, so I don't know. But great question, wonderful thing to think about and ponder about. Uh, gets us to start trying to think about what it's actually like to be uh, some of these people writing scripture. Uh, another question from McKay Heasley is, what is Lehi's first blessing spoken of in 2 Nephi 1, uh, verses 28 and 29? It appears that it is available to all of the male followers of Nephi, uh, but what is it exactly? Another great question. Actually, it's one that I had while I was uh, reading along in uh, in Second Nephi one this uh, this week, and I thought I've never noticed this before. What is going on? Um, and so I actually had had been thinking about it. I don't know that I have a great answer, a definitive answer, but uh, my initial guess is just that it's the birthright, right? Um, but it is strange in that, one, it's being given collectively to basically all of Nephi's older siblings, um, and it's also strange because it's contingent on them being willing to submit to Nephi as the leader, which you wouldn't expect a birthright to do. Um, that first part, though, the fact that it's collective to Lehi's uh, older children, all of them older than Nephi, uh, could potentially be explained by an oversimplification in Nephi's record-keeping process and writing um, of what Lehi really said and did. Um, basically, uh, he's just trying to make the point that the older siblings, uh, all the siblings older than him, uh, they were, they're entitled to the birthright first. They're entitled to it before him um, and uh, must forfeit it to fall upon Nephi. Um, and of course, we know that the condition then that they're given in order to forfeit it is you have to submit to Nephi, which again is kind of confusing. Uh, but then we know Laman and Lemuel did in fact do that, uh, uh, but Sam didn't. So we know Sam follows Nephi. Um, yet Lehi ultimately, and we're going to get to this because it relates to another question a little later, Lehi ultimately kind of gives Sam's blessing to Nephi anyways. Um, but, uh, but we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, I, maybe it's just being oversimplified, and, and the point Nephi is trying to make is they were given an opportunity to have this first or primary blessing, this birthright, if you will, um, uh, up ahead of Nephi. Lehi was doing things in proper order and things like that. 
Uh, like I said, the, the fact that this birthright is kind of contingent on submitting to Nephi as the leader is a little harder to explain. Um, no one would want, no one would really want a birthright where their younger sibling is, uh, is given the right to rule over them. Uh, but it, it may, um, the point may just be that they actually had the opportunity to have all the blessings that Lehi himself was promised, right? Lehi's been promised this promised land. They're his posterity, and it's promised to his posterity. And so they've got all the rights and blessings of the promised land that have been given to Lehi to be able to prosper in it and things like that. If they're just willing to do uh, what the Lord has asked and follow Nephi as their leader. And uh, like I said, Laman and Lemuel, we know, ultimately are not willing to do that. Uh, and so, you know, their posterity ends up dwindling in unbelief and ultimately being the ones to inherit it anyway because Nephi's posterity also turns wicked. But uh, Sam's posterity, on the other hand, we know it counts among Nephi's, uh, which we'll get to in a minute, and uh, does actually prosper in the land for a while, all, you know, side by side with, with Nephi's seed. So, uh, so maybe you could say that Sam does actually reap the blessings because he is willing to submit to Nephi. Anyway, those are just some of my thoughts on that. Uh, I'd be curious to know what others think about what this first blessing may be, because uh, this is, like I said, my first time even noticing this and uh, giving it some thought. Uh, now we're going to go get into Second uh, Nephi two. Uh, Lehi, uh, this is this question's from Nathan Gee. He says, Lehi teaches Jacob the plan of salvation in a way that feels very Christian. How many of his themes in 2 Nephi 2 would be in harmony with the Jewish teachings of his day, and how much would we see as a departure from the teachings and understanding of the Jews? Uh, more of it has roots in pre-Christian thought uh, than many might think, um, though we also know that Lehi and his family, they have... Uh, they, they understand a lot more about the plan of salvation thanks to the revelations they've received on, um, on the role of the Messiah and, uh, and things like that. Uh, but the three pillars of the plan of salvation, creation, fall, atonement, are also the central themes of the Israelite temple back in Lehi's day. This is something Margaret Barker's done a lot of work on this, and uh, the place to go to see how this applies to the Book of Mormon in general, and there's some stuff in here that talks specifically about Second uh, Nephi 2, is Kevin Christensen's paper, The Temple, the Monarchy, and Wisdom, Lehi's World, and the Scholarship of Margaret Barker. You can find that in the Book of Mormon Central archive at bookofmormoncentral.org, uh, and he'll go into a lot of this temple uh, theology that's built around the creation, the fall, and the atonement, and how it applies to various parts of the Book of Mormon, Second uh, Nephi 2 included. Um, dealing specifically with some of the ideas in Second Nephi 2 about the fall is a know why we did at Book of Mormon Central a couple years ago. Uh, know why number 28, what are the origins of Lehi's understanding of the fall? Uh, and that know why is built on two other papers that you might want to look up if you, you want to dig more in depth. One by Bruce M. Pritchett, Lehi's Theology of the Fall and its pre-exilic slash exilic context uh, in the BMC archive, and also Stephen D. Rick's Adam's Fall in the Book of Mormon, Second Temple Judaism, and Early Christianity in the B, uh, also available in the Book of Mormon Central Archive. Uh, long story short, though, is uh, 
the doctrine of the fall laid out in 2 Nephi 2 very much has pre-Christian roots and even has roots specifically in some Old Testament biblical texts that would have been available to Lehi on the brass plates. Um, and, uh, and Pritchett in particular kind of teases some of that out by doing some very careful analysis of the, of the Hebrew of some of those passages. Um, another uh, Noahi that deals with some of the ideas in, in, uh, in 2 Nephi 2 that uh, are often thought of as very Christian is Noahi number 43, why did Lehi suppose the existence of Satan? Um, this idea that Satan was this being that was fallen from heaven uh, is often presented uh, as something that's original to Christianity or later Judaism and wouldn't have been known during Lehi's day. Uh, but the reality is uh, this notion of a, a cosmic, um, what's the word I sh I'm looking for? Some kind of cosmic conflict between the gods where there is the ruler god who is challenged by, for lack of a better word, the evil god. And uh, this, uh, there's this clash where the evil god is defeated and falls and is cast out of heaven. Uh, that is all over the place in the ancient Near East. It's, uh, it's part of Canaanite religion. Uh, it's part of um, Mesopotamian religion. It's part of Egyptian religion. It's all over the place. It's reflected in Isaiah 14, which Nephi quotes, 2 Nephi 24. Um, and uh, it's, it's just kind of all over the place. And so... Uh, it's not hard to see how Lehi could have extrapolated these ideas and with the extra revelation he had understood the role of, of Satan and, uh, and his fall and, and things like that. Um, and there's actually some other work, uh, that, that some, well, work hasn't been done on this, but there's some other stuff in some really, really ancient Canaanite, uh, literature that has some relationship or some connection thematically to some stuff in, Second Nephi two, but nobody's uh, nobody's written that up yet, and so uh, nowhere for me to point you to on that. Uh, but maybe someday uh, someone will get around to taking care of that, and uh, we'll see what possible connections there are there. Um, another question from uh, Janine Glenn: uh, When Lehi is talking about the law in Second Nephi two, are we to understand this as the law of Moses or more general? Uh, idea of moral law. And as I read 2 Nephi 2, uh, the references to the law come across to me as sort of a general divine law. I don't know if I'd say specifically moral law. I mean, some of it is dealing with that, but uh, it's it seems more broad than that. It's just God's divine law is, is seems to be what that is referring to. Uh, and having said that, though, for Israelites like Lehi and Nephi and their families, um, they probably wouldn't seen a, have seen a, a significant distinction between divine law more broadly and the Mosaic law for their time. Um, all right, Michael uh, Christensen asked in 2 Nephi 2 verse 10, we get the first instance of the word atonement in the Book of Mormon as Lehi blesses Jacob. How likely is it that Lehi's blessing of his posterity took place in, on or around the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Ah, oh, that's a cool possibility. I don't know anybody who's looked into it, though. Um, as I go back through uh, 2 Nephi 2 with that idea in mind, I see some other themes popping out that uh, have some bearing and some relevance and, and possible connections to what goes on on the Day of Atonement and uh, during that general time of year for the Israelite festivals. Uh, in particular, uh, towards the end of 2 Nephi, 
uh, when he's talking about, uh, in verse 26 or 27, not sure off the top of my head, but when he's talking about um, men are free to choose uh, either uh, basically uh, liberty and eternal life or captivity and death, this is what's called the two ways doctrine. And uh, it is uh, very much embedded into the Day of Atonement uh, liturgy and things like that known from ancient Israel um, and has a lot of connections there. So really cool possibility. I would need some time to go through a lot more and, and think a lot more carefully about it before I was willing to commit, uh, but I do, uh, I do think it's something worth exploring and fleshing out a lot more. Um, Follow-up from Michael Christensen was, uh, when Jacob later returns to this theme in 2 Nephi 9, might that also have been a Yom Kippur occasion? Yes. In fact, this is one that scholars have explored or investigated. Um, you can read more about it in Noai number 32. Did Jacob refer to ancient Israelite autumn festivals? Um, and that's based on a paper by John S. Thompson called Isaiah 50 and 51, the Israelite Autumn Festivals, and the Covenant Speech of Jacob in 2 Nephi 6 through 10. Uh, and you can find that for free in the Book of Mormon Central archive at bookofmormoncentral.org. Uh, he doesn't necessarily pin it specifically to the Day of Atonement, but the Day of Atonement is part of the larger uh, Autumn Festival season uh, that, uh, that the Israelites celebrated, much like we have, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's all really close together. And Thematically, when we celebrate that holiday season, uh, a lot of the themes from these other holidays kind of bleed into one. Uh, you know, we have gratitude not just on Thanksgiving, but on Christmas. And, um, and you know, the whole period, that whole season is often viewed as a time to reflect on our year and to make new goals and commitments and, and renew um, our determination to be better and things like that, which is more specifically associated with New Year's. And so whether it was specifically on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement or sometime around then, I can't say, but uh, there's definitely a connection there to the Israelite Autumn Festivals and uh, Day of Atonement in, set in Jacob's speech uh, in 2 Nephi 6 through 10. Uh, all right, uh, for 2 Nephi 4, uh, we have a question from Karen Foster. Uh, Lehi passes the birthright to Nephi, skipping over Sam, who appears to also be a religious, a, a righteous believer. Any insights into why? And this is what I was referring to earlier uh, that ties into the earlier question about the first blessing. Um, in 2 Nephi 4.11, uh, basically Lehi says that Sam's seed will be counted among Nephi's seed and blessed with them and grow with them and uh, and have all the blessings and everything that's been assured to Nephi, which we don't fully know what those blessings are since, as we talked about, Nephi's blessing is left out. But um, it's basically, Sam's inheritance is kind of given to Nephi. Um, and what's going on there? Why is that? Um, there's an, an interesting uh, pattern that uh, some scholars have noticed when, uh, when it comes to identifying the different tribes of the Lehite people. Um, they're always divided into seven tribes, and those seven tribes don't actually include everybody. There's the Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites, and then there's the Nephites, the Jacobites, the Josephites, and the Zoramites. And uh, notice that there are no Samites, 
And there are also, we don't ever learn, even learn the names of Ishmael's sons, let alone, you know, why don't they get independent tribes? Why are they just lumped under Ishmael? Um, and uh, the theory that's out there is uh, this ties back to what Lehi's doing here in this blessing. Uh, and particular, you know, the reason there are no Samites is because Sam's seed is going to be counted among Nephi's seed. Um, but the reason Lehi is doing this, he seems to be, uh, for lack of a better term, gerrymandering the tribal affiliations a little bit. Um, and uh, the theory is that he deliberately wanted there to be seven, because seven is an important typological number. It had a lot of significance in Hebrew. Excuse me. It had a lot of significance in Hebrew. It also had a lot of significance in, uh, in some ancient American cultures, particularly in Mesoamerica and things like that. Uh, we have a Noah about this, Noah number 319. Why did Lehi divide his people into seven tribes? Um, and then there's a, a short paper in our archive, in the Book of Mormon Central Archive, by John Sorensen and some others, Seven Tribes, an Aspect of Lehi's Legacy, that go a little bit more in depth into this, but it appears that he deliberately wanted to make sure that there were seven groups of people. Um, and so because Nephi had been appointed by the Lord, really, uh, to be the leader, uh, it appears Sam's posterity kind of got shoehorned into Nephi's in order to create this ideal number seven for, uh, for the tribes. Uh, that's the main theory that's out there for, for talking and, and addressing that kind of thing. Um, so you may want to check that out. All right. Uh, this is going to be the last question, uh, we've got time for today. I'm, I apologize to everyone who, uh, whose question we didn't get to get to, uh, but this is from, uh, this is in 2 Nephi 5. It's from Maria Magdalena Espinosa. And uh, in 2 Nephi 5, 6, after Lehi's death, Nephi and his brothers, uh, and it also mentions sisters. I'm curious why there's a record of Lehi's blessings to Jacob, Joseph, Laman, and Lemuel and their sons and daughters, but never a record of his own daughters. That's a, that's a great question, um, and it's, uh, it's an unfortunate omission. I'd love to know what, uh, what Lehi had to say to his daughters. Um, we actually see the same thing happen in Genesis 49 with, uh, with the patriarch Jacob to his 12 sons. We have blessings for all 12 sons, uh, but none of his daughters. Um, unfortunately, in ancient Israel and in the ancient Near East and really the pretty much the entire ancient world more broadly, though there's always some nuance and exceptions to this kind of thing. But generally speaking, uh, the ancient world is just very patriarchal and uh, uh, women are uh, not considered as important as men and sometimes seen as sec secondary and things like that. And our authors of scripture uh, were men of their time and often reflected these kind of cultural attitudes and values. And so I suspect the reason we don't have uh, I, I suspect that's a part of why we don't have his blessings to his daughters. Um, again, it's unfortunate. We'd love to have them. I don't think uh, these kind of cultural attitudes we see reflected in ancient scripture at all reflect on how God uh, sees his own daughters and uh, views women. Uh, church leaders today have been very clear uh, of, of the fact that God has always had to work with imperfect people and he's had to work with them where they're at. And so um, fortunately we've made a lot of progress and, uh, you know, um, we live in a different world now. Uh, but, uh, 
it's a great question. I wish we could know uh, a little bit more about Nephi's sisters and the blessings that, uh, that they were promised. Um, we do know that they followed Nephi, and so we know they must have been righteous, and I'm sure they were a wonderful blessing to his community when they were getting started. Um, but anyway, that's everything we have, uh, everything I have for today. Uh, let me know, you know, we're still trying to decide if this is something we're going to keep doing, so let us know if you want us to keep doing this each week, and uh, I hope you enjoy uh, your continued study of the Book of Mormon. Thanks.